and welcome to a very special episode of Get Me Another. Usually, we are a podcast that explores those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. But not today, or or at least sort of not today. This is the third in our series of Don't Get Me Another bonus episodes. And in each of these episodes, rather than talking about a blockbuster film or the movies that followed them, we discuss a motion picture that didn't quite meet expectations that were set for it and that Hollywood subsequently shunned. A movie that might have been a trendsetter had things gone a little differently. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. And once this podcast is complete, Chris, just know I did not say this. I am not here. <laughs> I I need to end more meetings with that, in all seriousness. That's, you know, that that's going to be my outro from here on out. And then back out. You have to back out. Don't turn around. <laughs> no, Never show your back. You're just <laughs> Well, I'll back. also be swimming yeah. in a giant orange gaseous tank. <laughs> Um, That's also, you know, something I'm shooting for. Uh, Today, if you haven't already guessed, we'll be talking about one of the biggest and most ambitious films that had been produced to that point, directed by a visionary filmmaker and based on a science fiction masterpiece. This is Don't Get Me Another, Dune. No, the most widely read, talked about, and cherished masterpiece of a generation comes to the screen. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune. I see two great houses feuding. A world where the unexpected Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and the unbelievable meet. Where kingdoms are built on earth that moves and skies are filled with fire. Where warriors fight with a thought and kill with a word. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. A world where the mighty, the mad, all I can see is an Atreides that I want to kill. And the magical, the sleeper has awakened, will have their final battle. A world called Dune. Long live the fighters! We will kill until no Harkonnen breathes Arakeen air. Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. And we are joined today by a very special guest who we are incredibly excited to have with us for this episode, Max Avery, the author of the absolutely incredible book, A Masterpiece in Disarray, David Lynch's Dune, and Oral History. Welcome to the show, Max. Yeah, welcome. Hello. It's nice to be here. Uh, yeah. I, I have a shirt that says that, by the way, uh, that, that uh, with the Guild Navigator on it. I did not say this. <laughs> <laughs> I am not here. That is fantastic. And I will be searching for that shirt online after we yeah, get yeah. off the podcast because that's great. Yeah. Also, if, if, you, if, you, if, you've, uh, if you ever watch that scene really, really closely, there's a point where one of the uh, black suited guildsmen in the background trips. No. Oh, <laughs> yeah. wow. Well, you yeah, know, yeah. I guess, you know, those, they didn't look like they were the first most comfortable. Stage, right? Was that, was that- <laughs> yeah, first stage. <laughs> 
first stage. First stage, you, gotta, you know, the third stage guy's not tripping. And, you know. Yeah. Um, who, know, who knows what's going on in that scene? Like, you got the guy <laughs> vacuuming up, like, just a little bit of slime. Not all the slime, but just a tiny bit. I love that they clean your floors on the way out. That is, <laughs> like, that's a, that's a, that's a service they provide. And I think, I think it's great. First of all, I just I got to say at the outset, we've we've read your book and I just got to say congratulations on on this masterpiece in disarray. It is simply an extraordinary achievement. I mean, can you tell us what prompted you to write the book beyond? I mean, obviously, being a fan of David Lynch's Dune, what what was it that 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 inspired it? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, um, you know, I've been uh, a movie journalist, you know, for a long time since 2005 or so. And, um, you know, I, I, I spent a, many of those years, you know, writing for sites that uh, either were content farms or then became content farms gradually, like frog in a pot style. Um, sure. And uh, they, I, 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 I was leaving, I was in the process of leaving. And I, I looked at all the articles I'd written in like seven years or something. And it was like 7,000 articles. Oh, wow. I think I was proud of five of them. Oh, wow. oh. <laughs> so I, and I was just like, it, you know, and, and you, you guys know what those sites are like, you know, it's just like aggregate content. Sure. You know, they're just shooting it out of a cannon. There's no value to it. It's like, you know, nobody even reads it. They're just like, let me see the trailer. Let me see the poster, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I, and I, I was just like, what is the exact opposite of this kind of, non-journalism and it's like okay well let let me you know do like a super deep dive into one movie uh and and to top it all off it's it's a it's a movie that uh you know is 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 kind of a you know a black sheep movie it's like the you know it's it's a movie that's been kicked around a lot and is not really very respected you know even by lynch fans it's it's it was sort of shunned so i i got the deal to write the book and um, it was originally supposed to be done in like seven months. It was supposed to be like 150 pages. Oh, wow. It is much bigger. It is much bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they wanted like, you know, they said like, if you get two or three interviews, that's good. I wound up getting something like 60 interviews. It, it, the you know, interviews that, yeah. that you got are incredible. Like yeah. the, 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 the people that you got to sit down and talk about their experiences on the movie. It is amazing. I, I don't know how you did it. It's just, I mean- from Kyle McLaughlin, Raffaella De Laurentiis. I mean, we'll we'll talk about it later. But one of one of the star breakout characters of of your story is is Bob Ringwood. My goodness, mm-hmm. he is fascinating. <laughs> oh my god, I love. I want to adopt Bob. He's the best. I, I was actually just talking to him tonight. He's he's a wonderful guy and and so brilliant, and so yeah. underrated. He's retired now. Um, but obviously if people don't know who Bob Ringwood is, like he designed the Batman costumes for the first four Batman movies, you know, he did, uh, AI artificial intelligence. He did Troy, he did Excalibur. Like Excalibur was, just, was his first film, a, a movie that we've covered film, on this yeah. podcast and love. Yes. Big Excalibur. Fans. Yeah. He, Bob, Bob Ringwood is a genius. And, uh, and, and he also gives no fucks. Yeah. Um, not, not in an asshole way. Like he's, he's actually very complimentary to most of the people involved in the film, but he's just, you know, he's just like, this is what happened. I'm not, you know, I don't care. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's why, you know, he's great. And Sean Young is also great that way. You know, there's, there's, there's quite a few people who, who, you know, spill the tea. Um, but I was also, you know, it was also like, 
you, you know, I, I tried to do the book respectfully too, in the sense that like I wasn't digging for dirt. Well, that's not no, and that's not the kind of book it is. It's it's this amazing chronicle of this this absolutely gargantuan enterprise to to put this book on film that didn't always go to plan, but is still an extraordinary achievement. Uh, for anybody out there who is unfamiliar with Dune, I mean. Well, I don't know what I, you, you're probably not listening to this to begin with, but and just in case, we'll give the give the nuts and bolts of it. The film came out in December of 1984. It was co-financed by legendary Italian producer Dino De Laurentiis and produced by his daughter Raffaella De Laurentiis. It was written and directed by David Lynch, his third feature film following Eraserhead and The Elephant Man. And it, God, it features the most incredible international cast, which I'm going to speed through now. Kyle MacLachlan, Francesca Annis, Jurgen Prochnow, Jose Ferrer, Kenneth McMillan, Cyan Phillips, Patrick Stewart, Freddie Jones, Richard Jordan, Dean Stockwell, Max von Sydow, Brad Dourif, Paul Smith, Jack Nance, Linda Hunt, Everett McGill, Virginia Madsen, Sean Young, Elisa Witt, and of course... Sting. So if any of the just, I mean, the sheer tonnage of 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 star power in it is amazing. Way, it's 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 actually it's, it's Sean Phillips. Oh, it looks oh, like okay. it looks like Cyan, but it's it's Sean, and I know that because it, it was a nightmare trying to figure out oh, good. Who, which Sean people were talking about. Sean Phillips. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I was like, are you talking about Sean Young or Sean Phillips right now? Like, which Sean are you talking about? Well, Rob and I are both big fans of David Lynch's Dune. I, I mean, and and while it is admittedly an imperfect film, uh, and and you get into many of the reasons. For that in the book, I just I, I want to start with the fact that it's not the first attempt to bring Frank Herbert's Dune to the screen. Like, and you cover a little bit this in sort of the the preamble, and I think it's interesting and worth mentioning. You have Arthur P. Jacobs, the producer of Planet of the Apes, originally mm-hmm. tried in the early seventies. There's of course Alejandro Jardawarski, which is chronicled in a in a fantastic documentary, uh, Jardawarski's Dune, and then that's where Dan O'Bannon and H.R. Giger meet. And then you get to Dino De Laurentiis, at, first with Ridley Scott, and then with David Lynch. Uh, and it's just this amazing, like, the, the run-up to that is fantastic. No, it, it, it really is. And, and yeah, and, and, you know, the, the, the pre-production of this film was an odyssey in and of itself. I think you left out the very first person to try to get the rights, which was Roger Corman. Oh, my God, you're right. Yeah. Oh, how could I? Yeah, I how believe he I? wanted to do it in Czechoslovakia or something. He wanted to, you know probably, you know, obviously do it very cheap. And um, yeah, I actually, I reached, I, I reached out to Roger cause I've interviewed Roger before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I couldn't get a hold of, um, you know, he was, it, it was just like, I think, I think it almost happened and then it didn't. Um, yeah. But Roger's still around and I, I, I hope some, I hope someday somebody gets the, the story behind Roger Corman's Dune. Oh my God. I, that is, that is a hard thing to get my brain around is Rod, yeah, the idea yeah, of Roger yeah. Corman's Dune. You know, like I'm a huge fan of the Arthur P. Jacobs Planet of the Apes cycle. I think it's like, you know, one of the, you know, first real, um, you know, movie sagas, mm-hmm. you know, cause like before Planet of the Apes, you had, you know, you had a lot of, you, you had sequels, yeah, but they're usually just like a re, Re, retread of the first one but like planet the five planet of the apes movies really do tell us a, a story and they have a through line you know each one is very different and um and i think dune could have been the next you know sort of uh, evolution of that kind of uh, you know countercultural um sci-fi you know 70s you know gritty you know uh, uh, bummer sci-fi <laughs> 
And if you if you read some of the scripts that Arthur P. Jacobs was developing, like some of the treatments and stuff, like yeah, they they, they all would have had been similar to the Planet of the Apes, and you know they would have had it would have had like a sh- kind of a shock ending, oh, you know, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I think I think the 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 image that sticks with me from the, the Arthur P. Jacobs from one of the um, treatments was um, the very last shot of the film was like Stilgar. Uh, sinking into sand like his hand like you know falling into the sand i was like wow that's fantastic wow yeah no i we i I love plan of the apes i i know i I could speak for rob on this it's just the the, one of the all-time great uh you know i mean again it, it paved the way for so much like there's no like both both in terms of the films themselves and their content and the marketing i mean there's no Star Wars toys without the success of Planet of the Ape toys a couple of years earlier. Like it's it's this it's it's a really significant inflection point in sci-fi, paving the way for for what was to come, including including the film version of Dune. Because this is an oral history, and um, while reading this, you clearly at points play with this very knowingly. People's memories are not, uh, this is not (laughs) on lockdown. You know, memory is, human memory is fallible. We all experience things different ways. And so you do wind up at certain points, and I'm sure you knew this going in, where you have kind of, there's a Rashomon quality to the story (laughs) at times where you are getting conflicting reports from people. Uh, And I was just wondering how, how as a writer and, you know, and kind of editing this together yourself, how did you... What was your philosophy going in or, or, or did you work one out or was it just kind of, you know, case by case? Well, it, it, that's a good question because it's, it's, it's cert- there certainly were, um, you know, people with fuzzy memory because it's a 40 year old movie. Like, come sure. on, like, you know, some people have, you know, remembered it better than others, you know, and like, yeah, like uh, a really good example was um, something I cut out of the book was uh, I think David Page from Toto told me that, um, They'd done a demo for the movie Footloose, and really, um, and that they and that that it became like, and and I, and I think uh, what's it, what's this? Who's the singer from who did Footloose? Is it Kenny Loggins? Kenny Loggins was, it, was yeah, and and they said like yeah, Kenny Loggins just came in and like uh, redid it basically, redid what we did, and then like and then I talked to the guitarist from Toto, Steve Lukather, and he's like, oh no no, David doesn't <laughs> remember. Like that's Top Gun. You don't need to worry about that. Like don't like. Don't, don't concern. And so like in, in cases like that, I'm like, okay, I can cut this out. It's not pertinent. Yeah. Th- but then there are other cases where it's like, yeah, it is literally two, you know, two people saying polar opposite things. Like at one point, Paul Salmon, who's a great writer, uh, you know, we, he wrote the fantastic book, uh, Future Noir about Blade Runner. And, um, and, and he was on the set of Dune as a publicist. I was asking him about like, like, did anybody like try to make the movie more toyetic? And, and, and he was like, no, no, David would never have stood for that. Like he would never have compromised like that. He would never do anything that was deliberately toyetic. And then I follow that with somebody saying there's literal toys, Dune toys in the movie. <laughs> I re- that was, uh, that stunned me when I read it. Oh my goodness. Another one of those spots that I remember was in pre-production, uh, some differences of opinion on, was it ever intended to be classic spacey sci-fi in the look or was it was it going to be uh, going in a different direction, which it wound up doing? I mean, I believe you know what Bob, I believe, had one opinion, and yeah, and uh, some other people had others. It was interesting. Yeah, and and he's right, by the way. Like we like uh, 
Um, there's a, a, a great guy named Mark Bennett who runs a site called Dune Info. It's been around for like 20 years. Um, and he's, he's like the biggest um, uh, Dune aficionado. And like he had like a piece of pre-production art that was accredited to Dune. And he was, and he was like, "What is this? This isn't like anything in the movie." And it, it, it just looked like, you know, a guy in a, you know, NASA spacesuit kind of thing, you know, a, li- a little, you know, weirdly proportioned, but it looked, you know, very NASA, very two thousand one. And yeah, and 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 then after he read the book and he heard what Bob said about how, like, before he came on, the movie was headed in that direction. He was like, "Oh, okay, so that's what this is. This is." something from that early, early period where they didn't kind of know what they were, where they were going to go visually. But I think where they did wind up going was incredible. And, you know, as Bob recounts, you know, like they, 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 they pulled a lot of really, you know, great, um, you know, sources of inspiration, like uh, uh, Viennese architecture, San Simeon, the actual suit itself, the iconic oh, still the suit. still suit is amazing unbelievable like yeah and you know he was inspired by like you know the human anatomy and it's like and what what makes that suit really incredible and we talk about that a little later in the book more in the legacy section um is that like it, it absolutely influenced bob's design of the batman costume the first batman costume michael keaton wore in that way like dune is almost like the the urtext for the modern superhero costume you yeah know? And and it's funny because I think that the still suit. First of all, I think it's an amazing design, and and it's obviously one of the signature elements of the film. But to me, the still suits themselves are kind of a metaphor for the movie itself because they're not exactly the still suits of Herbert's novel. And the two other film adaptations, the miniseries as well as the the Denis Villeneuve movie, are are kind of closer to what is described in the book. But it's so original, it's so distinctive, that it's iconic in its own way. And that's that's the movie. It's not quite Herbert's novel, but it's iconic in its own way. I mean, it's just, it, the, the image is in there. And we can talk, we'll, we'll get into some of the, the, the narrative issues that the movie has and why it has those issues. But there's imagery that is absolutely indelible. And if you saw that as a kid, like I did, and I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it on television, that's shit you're never gonna forget. Yeah, I, I actually I love the scene where um, Max von Sydow is uh, explaining, you know, like you know, the, the, you know, the urine and feces are processed and the thigh pads and stuff like that. I always thought it would have been incredible if, in that knife fight at the end, if like Sting like stabbed Kyle MacLachlan, just a big like arc of poop shot out of the suit or whatever. Uh, that That is a missed opportunity. <laughs> we'll just say it. We love Doom, but that is a missed opportunity yeah, for that final fight. Squirt of pee just flies in his face. <laughs> yeah. <he's, laughs> I, lo- I, I love the bit where, you know, you've, you've put this on desert fashion. You know, how did anybody tell you? No, it just seemed the right way. Well, there you go. He'll know, yeah. he'll know our ways. Uh, yeah. The production design is just incredible. It's just, it's just amazing. And, and, you know, like you, you mentioned how that so much care and time was taken in designing the worlds, the primary worlds of the, you know, cause the four primary worlds that they, you know, Caladan where the Atreides are from, uh, Gidi prime of the Harkonnens, uh, uh, Kaitan where the emperor li- and of obviously Arrakis, um, and you mentioned sort of David Lynch himself was most comfortable in the Harkonnen world of Gidi Prime, which I thought was oh, yeah. very, very interesting. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, you know I, I think he gravitates towards that um, 
not only those kind of darker characters, but also like that kind of industrial space. You know, you, you saw a lot of that in Eraserhead and Elephant Man, and there would have been a lot, a lot more of that in um, the movie he never got to make called Ronnie Rocket. Oh yeah, um, and and yeah, and he and he he was very into that. And if you if you if you've read my Wired article about the abandoned Dune Two script that David Lynch wrote, there was also going to be even more of that kind of style in um, the uh, in the world of uh, the Benny Twilaxu. Twilaxu, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's an amazing. Well, we'll get we'll get to the the Twilaxu. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because it's amazing. Yeah. But it's just yeah. like it's so it's so incredible the way they have. I mean. I watched the the I've I've now watched it twice since since we just kind of set this up and uh, I watched the theatrical cut on the absolutely gorgeous Arrow 4K edition which just looks amazing and one of the things I noticed for the first time because I'm seeing it at a better resolution than I've ever seen it the wood on Caladan and mm-hmm. everything is wood because that's what they have so literally it seems like everything on Caladan is wood and the amount of detail on on everything it, it's just in the background it's just there but it's amazing yeah and, and that was a really important thing for david and his production team was that you know each of the four worlds that are explored in the film have a distinct look so you know immediately where you are in you know this very sprawling story you know like in on dune everything is made out of sandstone you know on um uh, Caladan, everything's made out of wood, and on uh, Gidi Prime, everything is you know uh, kind of plastic and industrial and slimy and slimy, yeah, <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, and you you get you get a little bit of subtext about sort of the degradation of the environment and stuff like that, which is you know it's 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 a little more subdued in Lynch's film than it is in the novel. Um, and by the way, those all those environmental overtones were added later to the book. Uh, to like tap into the, the the burgeoning environmental zeitgeist. It wasn't really? in the book original. No, it was you know Frank Herbert. You know he he went where the money was. You know, and uh, <laughs> but um, that was something that I thought was missing from the Denny Villeneuve one. Like all respect to Villeneuve and what he's you know trying to achieve with his version. Um, but I thought all the worlds in that film had kind of this a samey you know, you know, uh, minimalist, brutalist, you know, flat kind of look to them. And I, I, I would find it very hard to differentiate some of the planets in, in that version versus in David Lynch's, like they're all just incredibly distinct to the point where if you just looked at a prop, you would know what world that prop was from. Absolutely. And one of the things that struck me, uh, people recounting, um, you know, the pre-production and production in the book was, talking about David Lynch as a director, as someone they're working with, where, you know, they really credited him with knowing what he wanted, but Mm -hmm. not micromanaging. Um, And Mm -hmm. later on, there was some frustration for building a bunch of things that then got cut, which was not necessarily totally in his hands. But I was wondering the sense that you got from talking with people and, you know, it's, you know, uh, time heals all wounds, but was there a sense that, you know, people really liked working with this guy because that seems to be what I'm getting from when I read the book. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Even someone like Ringwood, who was very critical of David and, you know, I think it's at, at certain points became very frustrated with him. 
uh, understandably. Um, you know, even even he said like he wished he'd done Blue Velvet with him because he understood him by the end. You know, yeah. like yeah, like I, I don't, I don't, I didn't talk to anybody who wouldn't have wanted to work with David again. And um, yeah, and and it's like you know, it's like what kind of like what Penny Shaw, the assistant editor, said. Um, you know, like she worked on Heaven's Gate. And she was like, and she was like, this is not Heaven's Gate. You know, like my, uh, Michael Cimino was an asshole. You know, David, David was never mean to anybody, you know, like, and, and, and David, you know, everybody loved working with him. I mean, so many people did, again, so many people start their long David Lynch associations with Dune. I mean, just the actors, just starting with the actors, it's, it's amazing. Everett McGill, Kyle MacLachlan, yeah. I love I love Everett McGill. Ever Everett's he's Everett's great. wonderful. He's my favorite of the cast. You know, just because he he says that deep timber yeah. to his you know like yeah. mm, shy hulu. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I did not know until I read your that he also did the voice of the Guild Navigator. That's right. That's, That's amazing. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's it's also that's Kyle. At the beginning, as the computer voice, they, that's what they, they would kind of pluck people and just be like, "Hey, do you want to do this voice?" Sure, okay. Well, like um, the guy who plays even even on screen, because the guy who plays not the guild navigator, because that's a, that's a big Carlo Rambaldi, but the guy who speaks for the guild navigator, um, who's got the the thing, like was ju- he was uh, his by the name of Arturo Garcia Rubio, mm-hmm. and he was just working on the film, and they kind of corralled him in to, to play that part. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's crazy, too, that Arturo is not credited, because he has a kind of, he has kind of a big part. <laughs> he's, he's in three or four scenes. Yeah, and certainly memorable. Like, that's why I kind of, that's why I wanted to say, take the point to say his name, because it's so weird that he's not credited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's, you get to another one of your fascinating characters in your book, is Raffaella De Laurentiis. My goodness, she is, mm-hmm. she is absolutely fascinating. Well, and I think she, she does not get nearly enough cred for, like, being, like, you know, a female producer in the early 1980s, you know, making these massive, you know, uh, pop epics, you know, and, and also being one of the first producers to really embrace, um, you know, genre, you know, like, you know, like Conan the Barbarian and, you know, Dune and, you know, these things were considered kind of, you know, fringy, you know, geeky properties, and you know nowadays these are like the bread and butter of the industry. Absolutely. So like yeah, like I, and 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 she was corralling such an enormous you know monster production, and she was, she was speaking like five languages every day. You know, like I mean, like come on, like this lady deserves a ton of respect. Absolutely. There's uh, absolutely. I think she's fantastic. Yeah. And, and and it's interesting too because I really really wanted to get her. And I, when I set out to write the book, I assumed I wasn't going to get David Lynch. Right. I just said, you know, it's not going to happen. He never talks to anybody about this movie. He hates it. You know, whatever. Gets a migraine when he thinks about it. And like, um, but I was like, I want, I got to get Raffaella because like she's really the the person who who made this all happen. And I talked, I reached out to Raffaella's, you know, people, and the thing they told me was. She will not do your book unless you get David. <laughs> so then it was like, so then it was like, okay, god damn it, now I gotta get David. Um, and then miraculously, I did. Um, and then I came back. I'm like, okay, I got David. Let's talk. Um, 
so yeah, so I, I have to give her credit too for, you know, in, in some ways, uh, you know, producing my book, you know, cause like I definitely wouldn't have gotten half the people I got if I didn't get David or her. So. Amazing. Absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. Let's let's talk a little bit about the casting of Dune because there is mm-hmm. there is some fascinating roads not taken that you talk about mm-hmm. in in this book. First of all, it, just every young actor in Hollywood in the early eighties was considered for the role of Paul. Like every hundred percent. Yes. Oh, and you talked to, to Zach Galligan of Gremlins fame. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to picture a young Kenneth Branagh. I don't think I can picture Kenneth Branagh that young because the first thing I saw him in was Henry V. So right. to going like another five or six years earlier, it's it's amazing. Obviously, Tom Cruise yes. was considered. Very, very close to getting it. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Val Kilmer basically had the role was dearly he was nearly Paul Atreides I would say they were 98% there oh casting God. him and yeah and like yeah I, be- I believe the the way Raphael explained it was they um they tested him so much trying to convince themselves that he was right for the part and um I think Dino had some issue with the shape of his lips I don't I don't know I don't know like I mean like he would have definitely been different <laughs> You know, like the way Everett McGill kind of compares him, he said, um, you know, like, like Kyle was more like Pierce Brosnan Bond and uh, Val would have been more like uh, Daniel Craig Bond. Oh my goodness. You know, it would have had a little more darkness to it, um, maybe even a little, a, little, a little more sexual. I don't I don't know. Like he, he would have had a very different energy than Kyle. And then, of course, at the very last minute, they they, they go on this hunt you know, across, you know, New York and Seattle and San Francisco and, um, and they, they discover Kyle and, you know, and, and not only is Kyle, uh, you know, a, a Dune freak, you know, he read the book like 20 times. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he looks just like David. <laughs> so, you know, David found the perfect kind of, you know, uh, avatar. Yeah, it's true. Like it's really true. The, the casting process that you describe or you know, that everyone describes in the book, it to me, it feels right or wrong, right? I could be totally wrong, but it feels emblematic of David Lynch as an artist where there's a, a, a lot of um, people are noting that there were no auditions. And that he yeah. would meet with people and he went by kind of his gut feel. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, there's a lot of talk about the extensive screen testing that happened with many different actors. Yeah. And and so you go, okay, so this is an artist who's kind of gut level. He has his instincts and he's going, but he is also meticulous. It's not he's not just throwing stuff up there. Um, and with I would also imagine with a with a production this large yeah the companies are not going to let you do that either yeah i mean i think some of that might have been Raffaella too like mm-hmm. in, insisting on screen tests and another thing that Raffaella loved to do was um to get like uh you know whatever like 20 20 women in a room and so okay this is val kilmer all right and this is kyle mclaughlin and just i don't know like yeah you know, ch- check checking how wet the seats were afterwards and like yeah um <laughs> You know, like, I mean, like, that's basically kind of what it came down to was like, you know, more, more the the people she canvassed wanted to fuck Kyle MacLachlan, you know? And I, I mean, like, that's just it. You know, she did the same thing on Taipan. She actually had cast Sean Connery in Taipan 
And then she brought a bunch of people into a room and said, who would you fuck, Sean Connery or Brian Brown? I was going to say, wasn't it Brian Brown who did Taipan? Like, that's... That's how Brian Brown got the role. That's amazing. That it honestly, that's amazing that Sean Connery did. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, cocktail. You know, that's FX, FX two, the deadly art of illusion. You know, it's uh, yeah, and and he he was up for some roles in Dune too. I, really, I, I don't remember. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember which characters. Might have been like Stilgar or something, but like, yeah, like I okay, I, it's 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 in the book. You know, like in, in my book, I list basically. I went through all of. Um, uh, uh, Jane, the, the casting directors, uh, Jane Jenkins. I went through all of her casting notes. I remember and Charles it, Dance as Ju- yeah. Duke Leto. That was an interesting one. Um, obviously, Orson Welles as the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, who had also been considered, you know, he was going to do it for Jardowarski, which is fascinating. That's right. Yes, the floating fat man. <laughs> and I I have to read this passage from your book. Uh this story, I was it was just amazing about Bob Ringwood, who got involved in the casting, calling mm-hmm. Gloria Swanson, Hollywood legend Gloria Swanson, mm-hmm. uh, about about playing a role in Dune. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read this. I'm quoting Bob Ringwood here. Mm-hmm. I personally rang Gloria Swanson, got her address from her agent, sent the script, and rang her about a week later. Gloria Swanson answered the phone. I said, Miss Swanson, I sent you the script for Dune. Hope you've read it. I wonder if you'd be interested in playing the part. And she launched into how she would love to play the part, that it was extraordinary. And she saw herself as the Reverend Mother, and it would just be wonderful. And I said, excuse me, Miss Swanson, that isn't the part. The part they were interested in you playing was shout out Mapes. There was a 30 second silence on the phone. And then she said, Young man, you get into a spaceship, you fly 30 years into the future, you get off the spaceship, there's a hill and a castle, you go up to the castle, it's pouring rain, you bang on the door, and the door is opened by Gloria Swanson playing a maid. I don't think so. Goodbye. (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) What? I mean, just incredible. And the fact that Bob Ringwood got involved in casting is amazing, too. Like that doesn't usually happen for costume designers. Yeah, no, he has that other story too. That that much sadder story about um, I for, I forget her name now, but yeah, but she was like she was like I'm dying. I want this to be my last role. You know that was well, like, yeah oh that God. was yeah that I mean it's just it's just tough and and he contacted Orson Welles and just I mean it's 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 fascinating. It, it, yeah. it, the, 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 the casting that it, it might've been is sort of amazing to think about. Yeah. He, you know, Bob was responsible for getting um, Francesca, I believe. I believe that was his pull. Cause he'd seen her in um, a stage production in, in London, right. you know, and like, yeah. And I, and I, I remember I talked to Jane Jenkins. She was like, I don't know how we got to Francesca. <laughs> like, That's cause you didn't find her. The, 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 the costume <laughs> designer found her. <laughs> amazing. Um, and and speaks it speaks very very much to the thing Rob you know was talking about too that it's like you know it, it feel the, the whole movie feels very uh, like like hey let's put on a show let's you know we're just cobbling this together everybody you can do this you can do that you know absolutely that's one of the things that really comes through in in your book which mm-hmm. I beyond all of the wonderful information about Dune and I I you know I love going into all of that but I think in, in general it also Really, and one of the things I loved about it is it conveys a lot of the feeling of what it's like to work on a movie. 
because you know from the outside it can it can appear like uh you know this this closed box it must be amazing or whatever but i mean if you've ever gone into a, a place it's like they have folding tables that they've rented yeah. You know, and, and as you go, you know, they're in they're in fire trap <laughs> stages um, and it's it really is just I, I think you capture that really, really wonderfully. And with what you've what you've chosen from people, how you got that out of them of just that it's a lived space and it's this is their work. They're going in, they have coworkers and they're they're trying to get along and everyone's pulling together. And it's I, I just love that part of the book. Um, yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of the things I go into would would feel like cul-de-sacs or like, oh, we should cut this, you know, in a lot of other books. But it's like, you know, I, I wanted to know about the catering. I wanted to know about what people did in their time off. You know, people got pets. People got, you know, like, do, you know, they got married. They got married, divorced. Yeah. You know, like, you know, it's, it's like it, I'm, I'm interested in in all that. I mean, I, I've been on a lot of, you know, I've, I've worked a little bit in production. So I kind I kind of know what it's like. I've been on like 50 set visits to like major, you know, productions. I've, I've, I've seen like, you know, what a gigantic, you know, film looks like. I was on this set of like Alien Covenant and Wonder Woman, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff like that, you know? So it's like, yeah, I, I know what these things feel like. And I, I also, uh, you know, have a sense for, you know, what wasn't normal about this production, <laughs> yes. you know, because there, there, you know, it, it is, it is in, it is in a lot of ways, like a very good, you know, you know, peek in, into what it's like on a big movie. And then it's, but it's also at the same time, you know, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, this isn't exactly how movies are supposed to be made. No, no. There's, there are things that are very much through the looking glass. And, and some of that comes out of, you know, everybody's down in Mexico and, and it's just a different, it's just a different environment that, you know, you have, like the one production detail that I, that just, I, I thought was fascinating. The Spacing Guild costumes are made from body bags mm-hmm. used <laughs> body bags i'm like that is that first of all that wouldn't happen in los angeles but it might happen down in mexico city and it, it's just like well you know there's the whole thing with the area with the dogs like the 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 dead dog dump yeah oh my god like it's if there's crazy crazy stuff not in a in a in a, a salacious way. There's crazy stuff in in that. Just this is such a gargantuan effort, and, and under such strange conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or just like the way they shot like the miniatures of the sandworms. Like the the way they did it was they they, they had this uh, 3M material called micro balloons. Oh, right, which were basically just these tiny you know microscopic beads of glass. And they're blowing these around <laughs> in the studio, and everybody, you know, people have masks on, but I mean, some of them did it. Like, uh, yeah, and that stuff just stays in your lungs, you know, and you get cancer from it. And, oh God! Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 yeah and, and and they were like burning tires and this all sorts of stuff, like you know, and, and not not even not even getting into like you know when they were shooting out in Juarez, you know, which later became the killing fields for the for cartels. The cartels. <laughs> You know, like that, that, those, that you're talking about shooting in 120, 130 degree heat inside, like, you know, zipped in, inside a tight rubber still suit. That <laughs> doesn't actually circulate your body's liquid. Yeah. And, and some of them are like, you know, I mean, it's, it was thousands of people, you know, in those costumes. And it's like, you know, some of them are, you know, from from Texas. Some of them are from the Mexican army. A lot of them were homeless people. You know, like, and it's it's just they 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 paid them in shoes. 
Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> when you read stuff like that, you, you, you can start to kind of understand maybe why Lynch doesn't like that, you know, thinking about this movie, yeah. you know, cause it's like, you know, I, I know what that's like, you know, like when you're, when you're, you know, even though it's a, when you're part of a big machine, yeah. but the machine, you know, and, and you're the person at the front of it. And like, there are things sort of beyond your control that are going on that are immoral, that are just like wrong. And like, you feel complicit in it, even though, you know, you might, you know, you might not be in reality complicit, like you, you, right. because you're the one in, you know, who's, who's the figurehead of the thing, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that sucks. Yeah. You know, my heart goes out to David because it's like, I know he, you know, really, wanted to you know not just make this a successful movie but i think he wanted to put a lot of himself uh into it and yeah. and, and i think there is a lot of him there absolutely is there absolutely yeah. is uh and i know you know i know he doesn't feel like he had control over it i understand but there's still a lot of him it is a david lynch film there's no question about it Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. and, and we've now you had three adaptations of Dune and I like them all. I'll say that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a fan of the novels. I like all of them in their way, but there's something about the 1984 film that is just, it is uniquely David Lynch and, and you'll never be able to replicate that. Yeah. I mean, especially when you look at it now, you know, when, you know, if you, if you compare it to something like, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but compare it to something like the Marvels. Right. <laughs> it's just like it's just the Marvels just feels literally like you know it was it was made in an algorithm or something, right. you know, and, and was and was made to have absolutely no identity, have absolutely no, nothing that would upset anybody or you know or or, or feel the uh, you you know weird or, or unique or you know it's just a product, you know, it's a Big Mac, and you know yeah, and then you look at Dune and you're like, holy shit, this is this is pretty crazy. Like some of the stuff that, that he got away with, you know, like who, who Oh, there's stuff that's so weird. I mean, well, yeah, like Rob, you work in production. Yeah. At what stage of a production (laughs) would the cat rat milking antidote box have been? cut? (laughs) Yeah. I I think when those words were uttered, well before concept <laughs> art was done, they would just be a no. Milking, yeah, it's just yeah, yeah it's amazing, it's amazing. Yeah. But but one of the things that I was I did not know until your book, which blew me away, was um you know things like heart plugs, right? We right. oh yeah, of course that was a David Lynch invention, but there were two key phrases. That I had no, I, and I've read the book, but you, mm-hmm. your mind just plays tricks on you. And it's not like I read the book and then instantly watch the movie. But uh, the spice must flow mm-hmm. and the sleeper must awaken. Mm-hmm. And it's oh, wow. it's interesting because, unless I'm misremembering, but uh, th- those were from, from Lynch. Yeah. Uh, there are other ones too, like traveling without moving. And yeah, and, and, and I think some, I think the spice must flow was used as a tagline for the Denis Villeneuve town. <laughs> I mean, there, there are parts of this where you could have met in a different world where they had allowed a three hour. And it's, it's also funny from our era to go, yeah. Oh yeah. A big popcorn movie. We can't possibly have it be three hours in the middle, the mid eighties. Right. And now that's all that they do. It's a, yeah. It's, a, it's almost like the, 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 the norm now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember what I, I took my daughter to, uh, uh, I guess it was a, a couple summers ago just to see the, the third Jurassic World movie. 
Um, wow. And uh, I get there to the press screening and my friend is there and, and he sees me with my four-year-old daughter. He's like, you know, this is two, two, two hours and 40 minutes long. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> She's never going to make it through this. <laughs> no, but just to get back to, you know, what you were, you were saying about, it's a very unique film. The thing that I find fascinating about Dune and that I, I started to realize while I was writing the book and I've certainly realized since my book um, has come out is this movie has a huge fan base, like of of people who genuinely unironically love it, you know, including me. And I'm like, but including us, including us. Yes. And and I'm just like, and it's like the, you know, the Richard Nixon silent majority, you know, (laughs) it's like, I did not know that, you know, until, you know, I really started like, there are people who love this movie and, you know, and 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 the you know this the fact that my book has you know has sold way beyond you know what we even imagined you know like the, oh well, that's people wonderful who, people were dying to get this book the fact that nobody had written it before is crazy you know yeah. like I'm I'm nobody like I'm like I'm not I don't write for Vulture or Daily Variety or Entertainment Weekly like I'm you know I'm just some shitty you know access journalist. Um, who wanted to do something better <laughs> and uh, you know, like, and, and, and as I'm working on it, I'm just like, this is gold. This is just solid gold. You know, it's like Dune is like the movie we've all seen. You know, they made it a million times. The the movie about the, uh, the quote unfuckable high school girl uh, <laughs> who no one wants to hang out with. And then towards the end of the movie, she takes her glasses off and puts on a new dress and everybody's like, Oh damn, she's hot. That's Dune. That's David Lynch's Dune. <laughs> I mean, and I think, you know, it's funny because with the last episode we did, we talked about one of my favorite movies from around the same time period, and that's Clue. And I think Dune, like Clue, is a movie that gained on home video. Yeah. Because it didn't necessarily do well in the theaters, but it played on home video and on television. I think television is where I first saw it over time, but it's so it's so iconic that when you see it, you'll never you'll never be able to leave it. And then if you read the book, you can fill in some of the narrative gaps, and and you can you can you uh, approach the story that way. Which is why it was a shame that um, Universal did not give David his um, uh, director's cut. Yes, uh, either for the theatrical version or for when they actually did an extended cut for TV. Because David, wa- as I talk about in the book, David wanted to do. Uh, a, re- a revisit, you know, he wanted to take a mulligan on Dune. He wanted to get it right and, you know, do a, th- you know, like a three hour cut. Uh, and they certainly had the material, like it was all there. Um, but Universal didn't want to pay him and they didn't want to put money into, you know, finishing the effects or anything like that. And so, you know, they, they, they cobbled something together really shitty. Um, and uh, yeah. And then the movie, has unfortunately had this sullied reputation since then. And then if you look at what happened to Blade Runner. Yes, 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 absolutely. Two years after they did that shitty yep. Dune extended cut, they do the, the director's cut of Blade Runner. And that changes the equation for Blade Runner forever. Changes the equation for Blade Runner and changes the equation for director's cuts because right. that, as you point out in your book, that is the turning point for the director's cut as a concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that was so successful, you know, like releasing that movie the way Ridley wanted to do it. 
It was so successful that today people don't realize that movie was a bomb. Right. They don't realize that it was a critical failure. You know, like they just know it as this thing that's had so much downstream influence and, you know, and, and is still so amazing. Um, and, and nobody watches the shitty theatrical version anymore. Nobody watches that thing with the with the crap voiceover. Unless you're doing an archaeological excavation the way I will <laughs> tend to do. Uh, but I want to point out, Blade Runner, not a success, came out on the same day in June of 82 as another movie that, although didn't have a director's cut, gained with time The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing was another movie that right. tanked at the box office. It wasn't even like, oh, it was critically appreciated, but it was commercially unsuccessful. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. It was not successful either critically or commercially. Neither was Blade Runner. And then in in the time, in over time, those movies gained. Uh, and we've had a, it's, it's interesting that we just had a, a collection of those on the show. We talked about Clue, uh, we mentioned Blade Runner and The Thing, and now Dune are all movies that just needed time to find their audience. Yeah. Uh, but it was out there. Yeah. And, and, and I think the fact that people appreciate Dune, even in its currently hobbled state, right. is, you know, says a lot about how they would have felt if they got to see the real the, the real deal, which you can kind of see if you watch the Spice Diver edit. Which I did last night. My wife and ah. I went, went said, honey, let's just do it. And she's like, yeah, I'm in. I'm in three hours <laughs> or, or I'm going to get takeout and we'll, we'll start it while we're eating dinner and then we'll, we'll go on. And we did the, the, which is, you know, you, and you can see it. You can see, cause let's just where the spice meets the sand guys. Mm-hmm. There is no way it is impossible to adapt Frank Herbert's novel into a two-hour movie and maintain any kind of narrative cohesion. It's like Lord of the Rings. It's just too big. You cannot squeeze that into two hours and 17 minutes. It's impossible. Um, and, and so this is why, you know, it needs to be a two-part movie. Or, you know, I think, you know, the best option in the 80s might have been to release you know, his four hour cut as like a limited roadshow version, the way they did in the, the big 70 millimeter epics in the fifties and sixties. And from there you be yeah. a big you know, word of mouth goes on. And there was a screening in Mexico of, of his original cut that apparently was terrific. Yeah. People, people talk about it in the book is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's a, yeah. Like, I mean, but just, just to be clear, like that four hour cut was a um, work print. Like yeah. it wasn't, it was a assembly. Yeah. Yeah, it was an assembly edit, and, it, and they don't they it, it did not contain very many effects. It did, it you know it was didn't have any music, and you know and, and a lot of scenes were sort of just placed in it. Like it the movie the movie was never ever ever going to be four hours long, but the version that David really wanted was three hours. You know, so that so forty five minutes more than what you got. You know, so like yeah, and. Um, and yeah, and most of that material is in the Spice Diver edit, you know, and then, and that's what's so great about it. I don't know if it's the way David would have wanted it. I mean, there's uh, the Spice Diver edit is also not perfect. No. You know, it, it, it carries through a lot of things that are from the extended cut, which suck, you know, like some scenes are too long, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah like, I mean, really what would, you know, uh, and, and then there's some footage that's just never been released anywhere. Um right. You know that's that still hasn't seen the light of day. That would have been really good to see. So yeah, I think um, yeah. I mean, I you know, David's still with us, so we can hope that you know maybe someday you know somebody will be like, you know, we'll we'll give 
five million dollars to transcendental meditation if you do your cut of time. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, <laughs> if we can get Zack Snyder's Justice League, can can we not get David Lynch's Dune? Yeah. For goodness sake. Well, hopefully, if if those elements survive the fire at Universal, hopefully. Yeah. But hopefully, we don't, but we don't yeah. know. That's a that's a that's an unknown, correct? Um, it's a it's an unknown. But I, I mean, the thing about the two thousand eight Universal fire is. You know, that was the universal fire and Dune was not um, necessarily a universal movie. It was a De Laurentiis Uh movie. Um, You know, it was, you know, Universal was the uh, Hollywood partner, but he, you know, he, he financed it by getting pre-sales all over Europe and, you know, Universal did not release it in uh, most of the European territories. So it's like, it's possible that the elements were not stored at Universal, right. which you know gives me hope that there, you know, the other materials are still somewhere. It gets a little closer. I mean, it, it gets yeah. you know, it's it's it, it gets a little closer to the you know to the quest. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. no, it's. <laughs> I want so one of the things I I wanted to mention because it was you know it's like in the production or starting to move past the production details, but this one like you talk about this is not how most movies go. Most movies don't even consider putting a hole in Jurgen Prochnow's face. Most <laughs> movies don't even consider doing that, let alone have it come to to nearly <laughs> it's like to get and it's the effect with the tooth and the gas and it's I mean it it works great in the movie. And now you do it digitally, I'm sure, but holy god, having that conversation, I could just Imagine, yeah, where David is, is is saying he wants to cut a hole in Jurgen's face, and then he's saying, "Well, you know, like if you don't want to cut Jurgen, like cut me, and I'll stand in for Jurgen." She's like, "I'm not going to cut my director up, you know, in the middle of production. It's just this is just not how things go." And um, yeah, and 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 Jurgen did wind up getting hurt in that scene, which sucks. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And and the the shot that you see in the film is him really being burned. Um, which is also kind of disturbing. It, it, it was it was a little wild and it was a little like, uh, you know, like like part of the problem was they hired some of the best, pe- best people in the business. You know, like Kit West. Yeah. You know, he, he did the Indiana Jones movies. Like that guy knows how to do things like, you know, like that, that thing with the smoke. And, you know, but the, the problem is, you know, all the uh, people that they hired kind of around them were like, you know, these Mexican crew people who had little to no experience, you know, and wasn't all above board, you know, it's right. like they, you know, they think they, you know, part of that was the fact that if they shot the movie in LA, it would have been a right. $70 million movie, you know, right. as, as opposed to a $40 million movie in Mexico city. So yeah, I think, I think that uh, everywhere that every corner they cut, cut them back, you know? <laughs> right. Right. And and it's interesting that the things that didn't get used, the, the story I alluded to it earlier, Bob Ringwood designed and manufactured costumes and hats for like a thousand extras. And then the production was downside to like 200 extras. And then it was cut from the theatrical version. And then it's in the extended cut. You have the, the scene where you see the, the mother and the son and there's no hats. No hats. No hats. Like and apparently they had made like a thousand hats and then they cut it and then they didn't shoot the hats and then they ceremoniously burnt them out of the garden of the studio. That is amazing and bonkers. Yeah. And that scene would have been good to have in the movie, like just something to indicate that there's 
a city beyond just the castle right on mm-hmm. Arakeen, you know that that there there's an actual population that lives in the city you know and uh weirdly that's the kind of thing that gets cut from a lot of these big epic you know sort of movies like uh all throughout the uh the star wars all all nine star wars movies really is like you get no sense of really of of much of what the world is beyond like who your heroes and villains are. Yeah. You don't really get a, you don't get to see much of like people like just living day to day, you know, like, or how it affects, you know, populations where these battles are happening. It's just like, yeah. So like, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, maybe that's on purpose. I don't know. Maybe they don't like to show consequences of, (laughs) you know, massive acts of violence. Yeah. Uh, You have, a great photo in your book because you have some terrific photos. One that if, I mean, you have the, the, the Bob's big boy in a still suit that was given (laughs) to, to David Lynch, which is amazing. I want, I want somebody to mass produce that. Are you listening Mondo collector? Oh, I would buy it in a minute. Yeah. Cause I love Bob big. I love Bob's big boy and I love Dune. I'm like, I would, I would buy it. And I showed my wife that picture. She's like, that's amazing. Yeah. And I want the, uh, the cat rat, that uh, can ooze Bob's Big Boy's Thousand Island. Uh, there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. We can make it a set. <laughs> that second stage guild navigator is fascinating because it looks like the baby from Eraserhead. Oh the, oh, the one that they didn't, the one that they didn't do, the Chris The Tucker one they made? didn't do. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. You could see that sort of the, the the sort of visual linkage between. It's like when you watch early Harryhausen movies, and the creatures have the face that would later be the Kraken in Clash of the Titans. It's these things that st- it's 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 fascinating. Yeah, there's a, there's there's also some there's some similarities to uh, the baby in Eraserhead to the uh, third stage Gil- navigator. You know, especially the scene towards the end of Eraserhead where it's like a giant baby head yeah that's an interesting thing about dune is that like you know david's first two movies were uh you know almost diametrically opposed you know one was like a very abstract um you know sort of uh you know weirdo art film right uh, you know you know clearly a midnight movie type of thing and then you have uh elephant man which is you know this really classy uh you know oscar caliber you know, bio period biopic, which is, you know, pretty straightforward, you know, is there's not, a, there's not a ton of David's weirdness in that movie. It's pretty much, you know, he was like a, basically a director for hire mm-hmm. and he did a great job. And it's like when, when you had th- those, both of those movies were successful in their own metrics. Absolutely. That's, that to me is the commonality is they were both very successful in their own ways. Yeah. 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 And so, but, but it's like, but they're very different. And so like, I feel like people could, kind of read whatever they wanted into David at that point. You know, it's like, uh, you know, and so that's one of the reasons why George Lucas, you know, wanted to give him Return of the Jedi. And, yeah. and it's like, you know, or, or like Tom Mount wanted him to direct Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Fascinating. Yeah, it was crazy. Fascinating. My God. What does David Lynch's Fast Times at Ridgemont High look like? I can't, I can't. I can't wrap my brain around it, but I am going to try for the rest of my life because I love Fast Times. But holy God, what does David Lynch's Fast Times look like? It's amazing. If you think about it, like he kind of did his own version of Fast Times with Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. that's true. No, that's true because the t- all the the high school stuff yeah. with Twin Peaks. You know, there's 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 an ed there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 Dune is Dune is amazing because it is it's both aspects. 
of yeah. David. You know, it's the commercial aspect and it's the the weirdo, bizarro aspect, and and it's that they 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 both like sort of melded into the you know into this fascinating uh, brew you know yeah. that he that he created and um he, even as they were cutting the movie down it's interesting it's like it's not like a lot of the stuff they cut out was the weirdest stuff no it was <laughs> no, <laughs> no! <laughs> um although although there was a, di- a alternate ending to the film which um i don't know if you've seen it i i released it 3 or 4 months ago but i i did a um uh, a cut of uh, from the storyboards. Um, oh, that were, no, I didn't that, see that. Okay, yeah. It's, if you go to my YouTube page, or you, or if you go to YouTube and you just look up David Lynch Dune alternate ending, you'll probably find my video. It's four minutes long, and it's this alternate ending that was to- completely storyboarded. And uh, if you watch it, I also I cut in all the little bits and pieces that they actually shot. And included in the film from this ending, they're just kind of interspersed throughout the movie, you know, from when they rejiggered it. But it's this ending where, um, you know, instead of it raining on Arrakis at the end, which is a very controversial choice, uh, instead of it raining, um, you kind of go into Paul's blue eyes and he he sort of, uh, you you sort of see into his uh, consciousness as as he's kind of, you know, uh, uh, transcending the guild, transcending, um, you know, the, the Benny Gesserit and, uh, um, you know, really, uh, you know, finding his way forward to the, the golden path. Um, and it's represented by this incredibly bizarre sequence where he, um, he gets attacked by like, like a, like a hundred really tiny third stage guild navigators who are burrowing into his eyes and his skin. And then he vomits angels and the angels destroy the, the navigators. And then his face melts into uh, the, uh, some water. And then it turns into the face of his mother. And then the the, the fetal Alia is floating around and like the, and, and, uh, um, the face of Jessica floating in water transforms from a drop of water into a golden lotus. And that was going to be the end of, of the movie at one point. That's incredible. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. You can see it. It's on, it's on I will. YouTube. Yeah, no, well, as, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, I, I mean, I can't, I can't, it is amazing to even consider that that was that was a possible ending for this movie that Universal had hopes would be the next Star Wars. Like, mm-hmm. I can you just? I can't wrap my brain around like the the fact like that they had like toy lines and bed sheets and all of those things that you would have for a big and you know for Dune and it's like I, I mean I was looking at some of the toys and. <laughs> Like, I mean, the the fact that, 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 first of all, there's a fade action figure, which is just amazing in and of itself. First of all, it's an amazing likeness of Sting. Like, it's a great likeness of Sting. Mm-hmm. But the accessory that it comes with is the cat in the cage that Thurfer has to milk for his cure. And I'm like, this is this is a bonkers thing that they would be like, Oh, this is a toy for kids. My God. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you, if you read my book, the the section on merchandising has a, a title and the title is knife fights on lunchboxes. Yes. I think that, that gets, yeah. a, that gets across very succinctly, like what was wrong <laughs> with the idea of 
trying to market this movie to children. I think you guys did another episode where you covered Dune, and I think you t- I think you talked about like the coloring books with like the yeah. dead the dead Duke Leto and Piter on the floor. Like, hey kids, color in the blood, and you know, it's like it's so bizarre. And then like, and then John Devore, who's a great writer for uh, Medium. There's a whole section in my book where I interview modern critics about um, the film. And, you know, he, he talked about being a kid and his mom getting him the sandworm toy. And he refers to it as a, a ribbed for your pleasure nightmare <laughs> toy <Yeah>. that Freud <laughs> would advise against buying. Well, so. and this is this is part of the problem with trying to mass market dune in this way like with merchandising have you seen and we will throw this up on on our socials have you seen the picture of the popcorn bucket for dune oh my god for the new two? one the vagina dentata popcorn bucket yes, yes i've seen it uh, <laughs> i showed it to my wife she thought i was i was kidding she thought it was like that's not real and i'm like <laughs> it's real and it's fabulous it really yes. is like it's so yes. funny that like the irony of ironies is that 40 years later, Dune has actually turned into that sci-fi blockbuster that Universal hoped to be. I mean, guys, tickets, the, the, and this will air in a couple of weeks, but to the, they were recording this is the day that tickets for Dune Part 2 went on sale. And I, let me tell you, it was not easy to get at the City Walk at the mm-hmm. at 70 millimeter. Like, mm-hmm. that was a thing. It was difficult. <laughs> It's it's amazing how like the times have changed, and yeah. I don't think that the new Dune is is what it is without the David Lynch Dune engendering so much love over the years. Yes, and the, and the thing you you'll find now is, is that I find wonderful about the fact that Denis Villeneuve has now done this movie is is now you have the contrast. Yes, now you have two films that are you know. Uh, very different versions of the same material. Yes. And you can make arguments about which is truer to the material. You know, like certainly David's version is the only one that Frank Herbert actually worked on and advised on, you know, and Frank did, Frank did, you know, like what David did with it for the most part. You know, I think, um, you know, the, 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 there are a lot of people out there who, you know, I mean, obviously, Dune, two, Dune Part 2 has not come out yet, so we, we haven't seen whether or not Denny sticks the landing with it. But, uh, you, know, there, you know, just from Dune Part 1 being out, there's already people, you know, who like Lynch's version better, you know. And it's like, I don't, I don't blame you because, you know, like, like Denny is trying to make the most accessible version of Frank Herbert's book as possible. Yes. He's trying to make the four-quadrant blockbuster you know, version. And that's fine. He is trying to do for Dune what, what Peter Jackson did so successfully for Lord of the Rings. Exactly. Yes. And David's MO was, I'm going to lean into the strangeness and the foreign feeling that this book engenders. You know, it's like when you read Herbert's book, you are dropped in media res into a world that you do not understand that is strange and foreign, that is 10,000 years in the future. And, you know, and, and things have evolved and languages evolved. And there's all these terms you don't understand. There's all these cultures you don't understand. And I think that's what's cool about Dune. And absolutely. I think, yeah. And that is absolutely captured in, in David Lynch's 
it makes me think of something that Rob said the first time we talked about Dune, which is, and you can say it, I don't want to, because it's, 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 it's a great observation. So, I mean, but uh, that was the first thing I thought of. I will repeat myself, uh, which is that uh, of all the versions, you know, regardless of who's truer to book points or whatever, David Lynch's Dune is the one that makes me feel the most similar to reading the book. You know, we always talk about hindsight being twenty twenty, trying to find reasons for things. And obviously, when you're an artist, you're trying to find like what worked and what didn't, so that you can take lessons going forward. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's a mystery. Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't sit here and actually tell you point by point why that is. Um, yeah, that's one of the things that I love about movies. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, is yeah. that you can't boil it down at the end of the day. That's one of the yeah. things I've. I can't tell you. How many forums where I've read people saying they wished there was Denny Villeneuve's Dune reskinned with David Lynch's visuals, you know? Or like, yeah, same thing with the Sci-Fi Channel version, you which know? I also mm-hmm. like in its ways. Like it's 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 got some interesting stuff too. Like yeah. I, I I think I just like Dune, and I I like you know every every. 30 years let's do a new dune and sure. see how someone else interprets it yeah let's party um yeah. i mean i mean uh you know you guys were getting into on your other episode which was great you were getting into um you know the the way some of the ways that david's movie is very different from herbert's book you know in terms of sort of the the the, the, the main theme of the book which is uh, and this this is something i was very I would say this is the thing I was most interested in was the fact that um, David's movie is so, so true to what Frank Herbert wrote, except for the main theme yes. of what Frank Herbert yes. was writing about. And it's which is fascinating. That, which, which is that, you know, the essentially that, you know, we should not um, follow uh, charismatic leaders. We should not trust charismatic leaders, you know, and, and you, and, and the whole idea was, you know, you have this character, Paul Atreides, you know, you know, whether he's a stand in for John, John F. Kennedy or whoever, you know, is, is a, um, you know, very forthright, you know, uh, well-meaning, you know, heroic character. He is a good person by normal metrics of that. Exactly. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's an, he's a noble hero, who becomes a monster? Who becomes basically space Hitler? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, you know, he, 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 the, the, if and and it kind of it kind of bugs me that some that a lot of people read only Dune and they don't read Dune Messiah because to me they're one book. They're like I don't like, I don't know how you mm-hmm. can even understand Dune without reading Dune Messiah because Dune Messiah is the Hangover. Absolutely, you know? it's the aftermath of 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 a uh, you know of a jihad. You know, a jihad is an, is an incredibly, you know, they, you know, they, they say it as this thing, you know, that's like, oh, this is this like cleansing, you know, positive thing that we're doing this jihad. Yeah. How, how are we going to cleanse? How are we going to cleanse <laughs> the universe? Yeah. How are we going to cleanse the universe, Paul? Yeah. We're going to kill 61 billion people. That's billion with a B. That's with billion a B. with a B. <laughs> it's amazing. And and, yeah. and one aspect that is totally left out of the Lynch version is, is the Missionaria Protectiva, that 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 the legend mm-hmm. that Paul takes on the mantle of was seated by the Bene Gesserit on planets. It, it is it is the ultimate long con. Yes. Paul exactly. is not a savior. He is he is a, he is a playing at a savior, and it's fascinating. Yeah. No, yeah, he's a you know. 
he's a carnival barker basically you know i mean he does have he does have powers and abilities but they're not that far beyond what the benny jesserit can do or what the mentats can do um yeah and uh uh, yeah, I, 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 I just it, it, it blows my mind that um, that, da- you know, that David basically just ignored that <laughs> and, right. and, and, and and told the story as Paul is a genuine messiah. Paul is a genuine hero. It's like the movie the Fremen would make to popularize the legend ah, of yes. the Kwisatz Haderach. Yeah, it's the it's the uh, uh, the space Laney Reifenstahl version of uh, of of the story. Yeah, there it is. It's the it's it is it is intergalactic triumph of the will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My God, I've I've heard, I've heard a lot of people talk about the movie Three Hundred that way as well. They're like, um, yeah, that they're like, oh no no no, like, like you don't get it. Like Three Hundred is like a, it it is meant to feel like a propaganda thing and it's really being ironic about the propaganda and i'm like well i saw 300 when it came out and it, it to me it looked like an iraq recruitment video <laughs> so oh, um you know like you can you can do backflips trying to tell me that it's 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 trying to do some starship troopers thing no it's not i i and i also, i've seen both movies it is not trying to do a starship troopers thing i yeah. guarantee it i guarantee yeah, it's, it. it's a it's a thin line between you know, uh, something that's satirizing propaganda and something that is genuinely just, you know, uh, propaganda. And, you know, and I think that, uh, I think David kind of had, you know, uh, one toe in what Herbert was trying to say. Mm-hmm. He did film some stuff of, you know, Paul, you know, having nightmares about his terrible purpose, you know. So, it, you know, he had a, a little bit of that, but for the most part, he is just portrayed as a charismatic leader. And then, like, if you look at, you know, the two men, you know, Herbert was a, you know, he, he, was, he was a political speechwriter. He was a journalist. He was very savvy, you know, uh, politically. And he, you know, and he, he wanted to write about the dangers of charismatic leaders, whether they were Richard Nixon or John F. Kennedy, you know, that, that both, of, both of them had, you know, the, the, these really, you know, uh, sinister sides to them. And Lynch, on the other hand, is a, you know, he's an artist and he was a follower, uh, a massive follower of uh, the the Maharishi, mm-hmm. you know, who, who invented uh, transcendental meditation. And, you know, and the Maharishi is a charismatic leader. You know, he's, you know, you can, you, there's different words I could use. <laughs> but I mean, like, essentially, you know, like it's, I mean, like, and again, I have nothing um, against, transcendental meditation you know in and of itself i think it's it's just meditation there's nothing wrong with it but it's like once you build a uh corporation around it you know that's when it starts to get uh sticky you know i don't, I don't know if that group is as insidious as something like scientology or something like but the, you know that there is that like aspect of david you know he is a true believer you know he and, and i think he glommed on to the spiritual journey that Paul does undergo in the book, you know, in this idea of, of un- unleashing the reservoir of power within you, you know? Yeah. And then he added things like the, the weirding modules, which are just, you know, essentially, you know, just, you know, they're, they're a source of power activated by a single word, which is mantra meditation. Right. You know? So, yeah. So I think, you know, so, so it's like, once you start thinking about these things, you see that it's, it really is a David Lynch film. 
It's truly absolutely a David Lynch film. And it's like, you know, I, I read like there's this, you know, famous um, Premier Magazine article that David Foster Wallace wrote in 1996. It was a profile of David Lynch. And he visited him on the set of Lost Highway. And, you know, everybody loves this thing. You know, everybody loves David Foster Wallace. He's the you know, patron saint of hipster writers guys <laughs> sure. or whatever. Uh, and, you know, yeah, but, but in that article, he's just like, he basically dismisses Dune. He's just like, he writes it off in a couple sentences. He's just like, oh, it was a bomb. And it was just a stepping stone to him making real movies like Blue Velvet. And it's like, no, bullshit. I call bullshit on you, dead dead author. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's it, the, the movie deserves more love. I was going to say, yeah, most of the criticism, um, a lot that you have from the time that you you have excerpts from, but I'd say to this day, I mean, I, it, it seems to fall into two camps. It's too Star Wars to be a David Lynch movie, or it's too David Lynch to be a Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that really, and and then some people say it's both. Like, it's, right. it's too David Lynch to be Star Wars, and it's too Star Wars to be David Lynch. And it really is interesting because there was, in your book, you talk about there's one very big voice in science fiction who is quite often critical, who at the time was a fairly big booster for this movie and that i just blew me away and i thought a lot of what he you mean harlan yeah exactly harlan and that a lot of what he had to say about um how it was set up in the states one way with what universal was doing versus what happened internationally which i guess at the time was mostly europe as far mm-hmm. as uh, the release goes. What do you think about some of that? Because I, I wanted to get your take on how much more successful was it internationally? Was it, you know, what was the th- the thought outside of the U.S. about this movie? Oh, well, I can tell you that I saw, you know, uh, excerpts from British newspapers where they were talking about how like, oh yeah, this movie is, is not getting great critical notices, but it's doing get really good business here you know, in the UK and, um, yeah. And like in France, it did really well. Um, it's weird. I, I actually am, uh, I, I have connections at box office, um, magazine, mm-hmm. you know, I, I figured even, I figured if somebody had the, uh, the international box office, you know, material would be them and even they didn't have it. So like, I was just, I just went on like, you know, the few pieces, bits of, of information that I had online, but I think it did really well Interesting. Uh, overseas and um, it is much more appreciated overseas. I can tell you that my book was hotly in demand in the UK where they apparently were sold out for like months and people were like, how can I get the book? And <laughs> I'm like, wow. They, wow. yeah, like my, my distributor that massively underestimated how many people overseas wanted to read this book and were into Lynch's Dune. Dino De Laurentiis sci-fi epics do great in, in Britain because Flash Gordon was big in England too. That's right. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, like, you know, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a movie that traveled partly because it had a, such an international cast. Yeah, absolutely. You know, which, which was, that was built into it. You know, that was why absolutely. they did it. You know, they were getting, you know, a lot of uh, uh, pre-financing from Europe. So they wanted you know, people like Max von Sydow and, you know, and, and uh, oh, Jürgen Prochnow who had just Jürgen done Spoon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, that, that's why you have a, uh, a German father, a British mother and an American, American son. son. <laughs> <laughs> it all, that all works. It all works why great. Not? Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I think the pug was also Irish. No, I'm just joking. Um, but like, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, 
but uh, yeah, no, no, it's a great question. I mean, I wish I had more of that info. I think Tom Mount told me he was going to try to get that for me, but he, he, I didn't want to bug him too much. Cause like he, he gave me a lot of really good stuff for, for the book. Like, you know, I mean that, that was also, that was a thing too, like just talking about the release, you know, like it, it surprises me that a lot of making of books don't talk to executives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, why not? Like, I think, I think we have this like David versus Goliath mentality, uh, uh, regarding studios and their, you know, their, uh, uh, you know, participation in movies, you know, I think the, you know, most film students or whatever, or film, con- you know, film fans think of movies purely in terms of directors. Right. And yes. It's like, no, there's a whole machine yeah. that, you know, makes these movies and hires those directors and hires those people. And, you know, it's like, and they, you know, and in, in the case of like the two that I talked to, Frank Price and Tom Mount, you know, who were very um, important figures in the industry, you know, like th- these are smart guys. These are guys who know movies. You know, they're not like, they're not these, you know, cretins looking at algorithms. I mean, that might be how it is. That now. might be now, <laughs> but, but, but it wasn't. And, and, and yeah. the executives that I have met and worked for, they love, they love that's why they got into that business to begin with. Again, I don't know about now in the in the Silicon Valley era of it, mm-hmm. but you know, a lot of these guys they 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 love movies. They're, they're and, they, and obviously they have corporate interests because they want to be able to keep making movies. They need to keep their company solvent. They don't want to go down the road of United Artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? yeah, it's a business, and I mean, I think uh, you know, like I mean, I, I don't I don't necessarily know what the plan was you know for dune from the outset i mean it's very easy to sell a studio on dune just with the pedigree you know like this book has sold blank blank million copies you know like this book has influenced star wars you know it's like oh well so so this is gonna be like star wars okay great no it's not (laughs) like that (laughs) it's different and it's it's more serious it's more you you know star wars is uh, a fairy tale and uh you know dune dune is shakespearean tragedy yeah it's 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 a it's a different it's a different animal and of of all of the the systemic failings for this dune i think the one that that i think is it's the the root of them all Mm -hmm. is at some point this thing was greenlit with a script that clearly was going to be a three hour or so movie mm-hmm. so when you agree to that plan <laughs> forget the cost overruns for vfx or anything of that nature right because i the money running out is it's not i mean it is connected but it's also a separate issue just the idea that at the end of it all they said there's no way it, this has to be two hours mm-hmm. right? right theatrical there's no way we can release a three-hour version of this you just should never have sent <laughs> david lynch off to make a three-hour version, and that that disconnect, I think, is where all of the—I mean, just everything—it's it's the center of it all. I think you hit. I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I mean, like I—that I, was something I grappled with too, because like, yeah, like if you're setting out to make a two-hour and change movie, why are you filming all these scenes and putting all this these resources into filming all these scenes that you're going to then dump, and then you're going to run out of money? for the arguably one of the most important components of your film, which is the visual effects, you know, and it's like, you know, you know, they, they, they really, 
what, what, what's the phrase? Uh, uh, cut myself to spite my face or something like that. Oh, what? cut the, cut the nose. Yeah. Yeah. Cut, cut my nose to spite, spite my face. That's what they did. And then, and and it's like, yeah. And I, I mean, maybe they were counting on having that extended cut, you know, for television or whatever to have that material, Available. I mean, that was actually very common. Yeah, a lot of TV, like the ABC Sunday Night Movie kind of stuff. Like I, I yeah. you know, I recorded those on on VHS as they air. I had the extended, you know, Star Trek the Motion Picture, Wrath of Khan, the Superman Sup- movies. Superman had. had a had a really long cut. The Godfather. You know, maybe they were, you know, shooting that. So like, but and it's also possible that you know maybe in their mind they said, okay, we can get away with doing this as a three hour movie. You know, we can push it through the studio system, but, you know, I won't talk about all of the ins and outs of it. You can read my book, but if you read my book, you know, you see that like, it wasn't just David, it wasn't just Dino and it wasn't just universal. It was sort of everybody, you know, it was, it it was sort of a, you know, a a big conspiracy of, of all these things happening that caused the film to fail. It was a perfect storm. Yeah, it's a perfect storm. And it wasn't just one thing. It was it was a cascading thing. Yeah, and and David and David does deserve a little bit of culpability just in the sense that, you know, he wasn't very experienced and he wasn't in a place in his career where he had the clout that he really needed to right. defend, you know, his vision to the death, you know, the, you know, the same way you know, someone like Michael Cimino, you know, did, you know, so it's like, you know, he, yeah. yeah, he didn't, he didn't quite have that yet. And so he was in a vulnerable position, but I mean, to, but to also give him credit, this was the most expensive movie Universal had ever made. Like there were maybe four or five directors in the world who had ever attempted a movie this big. Right. So of course he was out of his element. Absolutely. No, there's no question. And, and, you know, I mean, I, who who could have done this at that time? David Lean, maybe. <laughs> I mean, you know, I can't imagine. You know, like that's – but like – and honestly, that is kind of the perfect segue because even after they finished shooting and while they were in post, David Lynch was working on a script for a sequel, which you discovered – can you tell us a little bit about the discovery of of the Dune 2 script? Because it's fascinating. Um, I was looking for this script all throughout the two years I spent writing a masterpiece in disarray. I was looking high and low. I tried to uh, – I knew that I knew that Frank had had a copy because he pointed right. to one during an interview. said, that's David's draft of Dune Messiah. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because so, before that I thought like – you know, was it just a treatment? Was it just like right. blowing smoke? Was it vaporware? Were they just trying to, you know, hype the movie by saying, oh, yeah, we're working on a sequel? Um, no, like it was real. And it was like um, I tried to get in touch with Brian Herbert because I figured Brian might know something about it, you know, sure. being the, sort of the caretaker of his father's legacy. Um, he, he, you know, to be to put it kindly, wanted nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and I don't blame him because I'm sure, you know, he hates anything with the word Dune on it that he doesn't make money off of. You know, it's just it's his birthright. You know, he's entitled. Um, but, uh, sure. but yeah. And, and again, I'm some schmuck. I shouldn't have been writing this book. Um, I, it should have been somebody, you know, who, who uh, you know, uh, who he had approval over or whatever. You know? So there's right. a lot of good reasons why Brian would not want anything to do. 
but uh, and then I wasn't going to bug David about it because you know I I was lucky to get the time that I got with David. You know, I'm not right. going to push it. I'm not going to be a fanboy like, hey, do you have the Dune two script? Like, you know, he doesn't want to deal with that. It came about because I did an AMA mm-hmm. on Reddit and in, in the Dune subreddit, and I just was talking about like how oh I wish that my one regret of the book was not finding that script. And someone was like, oh, I know where it is. <laughs> and they like sent me like the file numbers and everything. And I was like, holy shit. And I was I happened to be going to California on a family trip like the next month. Oh and I was goodness. like, I'm fucking going there. And I booked my, you know, I talked to the people there, told them who I was and I booked my appointment and I got it all, everything was above board. I got clearance to look through the archive. It was interesting because I almost missed it. It was such a thin little folder. And I was looking through, every, I was like, I was finding all sorts of stuff. But I wasn't, I, and I even found a Dune Messiah stage play. Whoa. And I was like, and, and I, I, my heart broke because I was like, oh, this is what they meant. This is, a, it was a stage play. Ugh. Um, I was so bummed. And then like 10 minutes before I was about to leave, I just thumbing through the file one more time. And I'm like, Holy shit, this is it. Oh my God. It, it had, had the address of uh, Vandeveer effects in Burbank. And, uh, and, and it was, uh, it, it was dated January, uh, 1984. Uh, and it was, it was 56 pages. It was exactly what David said. He said, I got about halfway through, <laughs> um, and as and 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 it had notes by Frank Herbert all over it, and uh, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> yeah. So that that's that's the story, and um, I, uh, yeah, I it just blew me away. Some of the stuff in that script, you know, and I mean, like, oh yeah, my, yeah, like you've read the Wired piece. The like, Wired article is great. Oh my god. Yeah, the Wired piece. I mean, obviously, I, I couldn't talk about everything that's in the script, and a lot of what's in the script is just the book. Right, it's just Dune Messiah. Um, but everything I talk about in the article is like all the stuff that's different. That that's that's David, and it's crazy. It's just the oh, yeah. nutty, nutty stuff. And I loved it. And I was like, <laughs> I want to see some fan art of this right now. You know, somebody oh. use somebody <laughs> use uh, you know some AI bullshit to. To re to re to make this thing so I can see it. Oh, I want to see Skytel. Like that's that's yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, one of the key things, and I, I'll just to to get into it is that the role of of the Baron's doctor, who is played by Leonardo uh, Cimino, Cimino, yeah, who who was in reality this this tele, this group of, in in the in the Dune universe the te, the Telelaxu there's an L in there that I struggle to pronounce <laughs> he is a face dancer or a shapeshifter named Skyta and this is all set up in the first movie to because that is not a character for the 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 Baron's doctor was not a character from the book that's right but Skytel was a, a character, a big character in the in the second book. So, sort of setting that up that he will take possession of Duncan Idaho's body, who's Duncan Idaho's incredibly important character in Herbert's books, who doesn't have a lot to do in the Lynch film, despite being played by the late great Richard Jordan. Mm-hmm. And they use Duncan's body to create a clone. And uh, you know, had the description of the of the planet Talax. Ta- Ta- it's that extra L is going to kill me. It's uh, you know the the yeah, dark ben, metal. Ben, 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 
Twi'lax. That's, that's, that's how Kyle pronounced it in the first movie. Ben, Benny Twi'lax. Yes. And you you do see you do see Benny a, a painting of it or whatever a, a matte painting of Benny Twi'lax for like two seconds in the first. And movie. that clearly would have been a main set yeah. for the second one. Like that would have been yeah. one of the primary locations. Yeah, he he was hardcore setting a lot of Dune Messiah stuff up in. In the movie. Fascinating. You know, I mean, now in, in this day and age, we kind of expect that, but that was less done in mm-hmm. in 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 the in that era. I mean, it, it's funny because, you know, I mean, again, compared to Star Wars, so much of Star Wars, you know, so much of, of the lore of Star Wars gets written in Empire Strikes Back. The first movie, there's clearly a whole, like, it's a plan that changed entirely. And it is, it's fascinating that, that, that David Lynch was planning for the trilogy. Yeah. And I think, I think it, it, it really does a lot to uh, bolster the argument that David Lynch was the right choice yeah. to do. Because he was thinking of it holistically. He was, th- he was thinking of it as a, con- a continuing saga of a, as a franchise, you know, I mean, the same way he sort of meticulously, you know, created this you know, almost Star Trekian universe of Twin Peaks years yeah. later. It's it's a very similar kind of mythology. And they and he liked that. He liked the world building. He liked the idea of um carrying the story forward and building upon it and elaborating on it and, you know, really, you know, diving deep into this world. And uh yeah, and and, and yeah, and the fact that he laid the uh the the breadcrumbs into the first movie, not just with Duncan and and the the Baron's doctor, also with the third stage navigator, who's not in the first book. Right. It's a hundred percent something from Dune Messiah. It's part of why Dino got the rights to all the books, not just the first one. Right. Yeah, and, and also an- another thing you may not have noticed if you're if you've uh, when you've been watching the movie, because Virginia Madsen is just very much kind of sidelined. Yeah. After her, after her, after big her exposition. big floating head, uh, yeah. yeah. After <laughs> yeah. her big floating head beginning, which is wonderful because Virginia yeah. Madsen's face is wonderful. So yeah. it's not, you know, and it's, she's uh, wonderful. I love her, but like, you no, know, she's. Uh, if you watch her at the end, there's a shot where her father, the uh, emperor, hands his knife to uh, fade, and she's like looking down, and she's very like. clearly upset with what her father is doing. And like, if you look at her expressions, like she's clearly fascinated with Paul and she's clearly, you know, like has an attraction to him. And it's like, you know, this is all seeding stuff that, you know, becomes vital to doing Messiah. And, uh, and again, you know, it's just like, you know, Lynch is a master world builder. And he doesn't get enough credit for it. And-, and and there's a 12 year, for those who haven't read Dune Messiah, there's a 12 year time jump uh, in, in the story. So Alia, who is a, a little girl, brilliantly played by, uh, by Alicia Witt in, 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 in the first film, but you know, is now, uh, you know, in the late teens or, or thereabouts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cause again, she ages differently because she was pre-born, all of that. And, uh, you know, would have, is a major, is a major character in the second and even more so in the third. And you mentioned the article that essentially, Jennifer Jason Lee earmarked to play a grown-up Alia. My goodness. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, and I and I was just in envi- the whole time I'm reading the script, I'm just envisioning Jennifer, you know, a young Jennifer in that role and yeah, and it it, it would have been it would have been amazing and the scene of her 
uh, uh, fighting a robot with a sword naked would have been like, oh my God, you know, forget Sting in a thong. Like this would have been, you know, an iconic moment in science fiction film. I don't know how you would have done it uh, PG. You probably would have had to do some Austin Powers shit. Right. Um, you know, even like there's one thing I, 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 I didn't get to write about this in my article because honestly, I didn't even think about it. So I'll talk about it with you guys first. Sure. Um, there's uh, we me- I mentioned in the article that um, uh, David was going to bring weave in a obscure uh, Harkonnen character called a- Abulard, who is who who is the uh, the demi brother of uh, the Baron. Yeah, he's the father of Fade and uh, Rebecca. Yeah, yes, that's right, and um, he's a he's a nothing character. In the books, he's just mentioned in the appendices, but uh, clearly David was going to use him as a kind of shadow, you know, uh, you know, guy who's pulling the strings kind of character in this movie. And I think it part of it came from the fact that Kenny McMillan loved playing the Baron. Oh no! Don't tell me. I read I read a piece, an interview with Kenny McMillan, where he said. I want a role in the sequel. That's the greatest Dave, thing I've ever David heard. Was, and David was like, I, sure, if I can bring Duncan back, I can bring you back. And I didn't make this connection in time for my Wired article, but I, I believe the character of Abelard might have been intended for Kenny McMillan. You know, That's the greatest they, thing I've wow. ever heard. You probably would have given him a different haircut, You know, maybe not so many boils. Yeah, oh, imagine, imagine him not a face full of diseases. Yeah, it clicks and it makes sense and it would have been amazing to see, you know, if would if, if the movie had been successful enough to uh to greenlight the sequel. I mean, you know, there's there was a lot of factors though going against that. I mean, I think that uh the fact that Frank Price had taken over the studio and Dune was not a project he, I mean, he even says like it's not a movie I would have made. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And Raffaella knew that too. She knew he was not a fan of the property and uh yeah i think um it would have had a hard time getting off the ground just with frank involved and uh, i mean maybe they would have gone with a different studio i don't know but like um yeah i think you know there was a lot of things going against it but i mean there were also there were a lot of preparations for it like they stored a lot of the costumes and miniatures and stuff like that and props sure like they you know and as as you read like there was they were going to revisit the the part of the first film where uh, Air Keen is being bombed by the Harkonnens, right? You know, so yeah, so they would have used all those models and stuff again, and um, yeah, and, and the highliners and uh, you know all that stuff, um, and and the, and the navigator, of course, was going to come back, of course, yeah, and and you would have had like these, you know, again, like very these cool opportunities for worlds you hadn't seen before, you know, right. you would have had, um, uh, like a, there was going to be a snow planet. There is going to be, um, the Tlilaxu world. Um, and then there was probably going to be some other stuff too, but, uh, you know, the, the, the script ends at page 56. So oh my God. I can't, just, I can't just before the stone burner goes off in the book, like it's, it's That's right. just before Paul gets blinded and, and, you know, you know, uh, it's. I mean, it's fast. I mean, I let, let's let's say, and, and we talked about this before. I wouldn't necessarily trade the David Lynch career that we got for a Dune trilogy, but if I could peek through the multiverse to a world <laughs> where that happened, I mm-hmm. would be fascinated to see all those films. Like I, 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 I would be. You know, it's just God. Can, I mean, can you imagine? 
Imagine in an alternate universe, Dune is a massive smash hit, and he goes on and does does uh, Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. Holy God! Imagine Lynch doing Leto the Second in God Emperor of Dune. Mm-hmm. Holy goodness! Like a, a half sandworm Leto the Second. It's it boggles the mind. Imagine the capital he would have had to have spent after a successful Dune trilogy. I mean, if you think Inception was bucking the studio system, I would have loved to see what would have happened with the blank check. But Yeah, we know what he would have done. It would have been Ronnie Rocket. Yeah, yeah. which is an insane script. It's out there on the internet. You can find it. It's like, it's got like a parallel world that this detective can visit by standing on one leg. It's got... uh uh, donut men and 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 the the main character is like a three foot dwarf who's powered by electricity who becomes a like a like a like an, basically an industrial rock star. He loves electricity. David Lynch loves electricity. That Garmin Bose. <laughs> like just the descriptions of it. It's a, it's a very similar feeling reading Ronnie Rocket as it was reading the Dune Messiah script, which is you feel like you're high while you're reading <laughs> the descriptions. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's unbelievable. Like some of this stuff, like, I mean, and just the way he describes like, you know, this three foot guy getting plugged in and making these weird noises and electricity is going everywhere. And, oh you know, God. it's, 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 yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I read that script when I was in high school. And it, was, and it blew me away. And I'm um, going to find it. I got to, I got to check it out for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I did talk to, it's funny. I talked to Dexter Fletcher. Um, who's now a big director? Who, oh, who yeah, was in, yeah. Who was in Elephant Man, and he 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 auditioned to play Paul Atreides um, in Dune, and um, yeah, and he talked to me, and he he told me he's like, I still have that Ronnie Rocket script. I was supposed to play Ronnie Rocket, <laughs> and and uh, and he he told me I want to make that movie. I want to direct that movie. I wonder if David would let me. Well, I mean, he 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 directed a movie I really liked the uh, the the Elton John movie that that should have gotten all the acclaim that that the yeah, uh, that Man. Bohemian Rhapsody got because the Rocket Man is yeah. is terrific. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. that's much, the much that's better, the good one. Much better film. Much oh, better no film question. Than, than no question. Um, I think I think that probably brings us to the conclusion of today's episode. Max, thank you so much for joining yes. us today. I, 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 it has been, it has been a delight and, and I can't recommend the book highly enough. A, a masterpiece in disarray, David Lynch's Dune and Oral History by Max Avery. It's published by 1984 Publishing and it is, it's available wherever books are sold. It, it's, it mm-hmm. is a great, if you love Dune, which you probably are, if you've been listening to us talk about it for this, all this time, it is a, it is, it is fascinating it is a treasure trove and just an absolutely fantastic accomplishment congratulations it is great thank you thank you guys both yeah, and i i just want to stress that for an oral history of you know a film from start to finish and beyond um this thing is a page turner i i blew through it i blew through it um fan, just uh so enjoyable so th- thank, thank you. you for writing this yeah. thing oh I yeah yeah and, and just so people know like i mean like you're going to see uh, like whatever on Amazon's 560 pages. Um, don't be intimidated by that because it, it is, again, it's like, it's, it's, uh, it's not written academically. It's, it's written to be entertaining. Uh, I, I cut out all the fat. So, and I cut out anything that reeked of filler 
or, um, or, or, or anything that you could just look up easily online. And I, and I, and yeah, and I, I wanted it to be fun to read, um, the oral history sections, especially. And, uh, yeah. And, and it's, it's also, it's built, you know, I kind of chunked it so that like, you know, every section, you know, is sort of built around, you know, a certain, this is about costumes. This is about music. This is about the effects. So if there's something you're not interested in, just skip it and, you know, just move on. And, and yeah. And so I think, um, yeah, don't be intimidated by the length, but, um, if you want to read the whole, the whole book from front to back, like these guys clearly did, I mean, there, there's gold in them, they're hills. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it's, yeah, we, we, the highest possible get me another recommendation for a masterpiece in disarray. David Lynch is doing an oral history. Um, Max, can you tell us where you can be found on the internet and on social media? I am at the uh, social media site formerly known as Prince. I think you know the one I'm talking about, the one that has a, kind of a swastika symbol now. Um, yeah, like I'm still there. Um, just uh, uh, my name, uh, uh, M-A-X-E-V-R-Y. And then uh, if you're less interested in the me of it all than the dune of it all, then please go to my Instagram, uh, which is uh, M-A-X-E-V-R-Y-1. And uh, that is all devoted to David Lynch's Dune in my book, where I I post all sorts of fun, fun stuff about uh, from the book and from, you know, of what I'm doing, you know, like making appearances like this and um, or the Wired article and all all that stuff. And there's going to be even more fun stuff, more Dune uh, stuff for the Dunatics uh, (laughs) this year for the 40th anniversary of David's movie. So, yeah. So, so, you know, yeah, definitely, definitely keep keep your eye out, and and if and you can also visit my um, I have a website. It's just my name m a x e v r y dot com. That's great. That is is fantastic. Uh, it has been it has been a delight and a joy, and we will look forward to all of the Dune stuff that's coming because we again we obviously love it here. It is the only movie that we have done two episodes on. It yes. has that unique that unique status, uh, which tells you how much we love it. Though I. Uh- I'm going to tease one thing, which is uh, later this year, it probably is going to become the first movie that we covered twice and <laughs> no longer be the only movie we covered twice. Yeah, a little, little, little breadcrumb there. Oh, even I don't know what that's cryptic and I don't even know what it means. My goodness. Yeah, I hope you guys do uh, Bay of Blood again. That's what I, like. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that episode. I'm a big Mario Bava fan here. Oh, we love we love Bay of Blood for sure. Oh, I I now I know what it means. It took me a second because I'm I'm not I'm not necessarily the sharpest uh, all the time, and now I got it. I got what that referred to, which is funny because it was your idea. Chris. I know it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there's plans within plans. We will be back three weeks from today for the first episode in our new series. Get me another A Hard Day's Night. This year is the 60th anniversary of the Beatles' landmark first film, which not only kicked off a wave of movies revolving around and showcasing music groups of the 1960s, but it is a movie that changed the way films are made. Rob, I know you. I know you're super excited for this. I am, and uh, that is you're going to want to check it out. It's going to be great. Get me another a hard day's night. Kicking off Tuesday, March fifth, 
Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorgis. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Blue Sky at Get Me Another Pod. And remember, if you've liked the show, please tell your friends about it. Tell your enemies about it. Tell your neighbor who's taken so much spice that they just float around in a tank of orange gas folding space about it. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another.
Nations. I must not. Feel 